If you've been following me for any given period of time, you know one of my favorite things to discuss is this idea of the Founders Investment Theory. The Founders Investment Theory, or sometimes we call it the FIT, is the bedrock for what syndications and funds need to do in order to set themselves up in the right manner, to think about their investments in the right manner, and to present those investment opportunities to, the, uh, to their investors. In this video uh, is a blast from the past, but this is probably the best work that I've done in describing founder investment theory. I think it covers all the bases on why it is so incredibly important to make sure that you've identified your own founder investment theory. I know you'll find it useful. The founder investment theory is the most important thing that you can do and think about for your syndication or fund. So enjoy this video. The founder investment theory is so important for what we do. It is uh, really the, the heart and soul. It gives us uh, guidance. It gives us guidance on what we need to do, uh, guidance on what properties we should be looking at, uh, gives us an idea on how we can talk to our investors, and uh, it even gives us an idea on how to better serve our investors and ultimately ourselves at the same time. So that is why it is so important. Uh, it is, uh, it's what we do. So. Let's go through founder investment theory. We're going to go through it in a slightly different way today. Um, so I want to go through it through the lens of what exactly we mean by these different complex, uh, these different models of strategies, and how we can really leverage those different strategies to um, really uh, be better served. So let's go ahead and get started. We're going to switch over to the whiteboard. All right, looks like we are there. So uh, before I drew this diagram, looked like this. We had development. We had stabilized ad value. Uh, we had value, uh, value add. I'm sorry. Uh, we had undervalued. and we had cash flow. These are the four main types of strategies that exist in any develop in any prop, uh, real estate uh, deal. So what I wanna do is I want to expand each of those and really kind of dive into each and talk about what we mean by each. So let's go ahead and just gonna actually, uh, let's go ahead and clear the board. That way we can start really, really fresh. Um, and let's start with uh, let's start with how we uh, earn the money that we do. What are those things? And I've talked about these before, and these are the value add opportunities. Um, but this really comes down to uh, how we make money. How we make money. 
there's two ways that we make money, right? And there's two ways in every investment that we make money. And one is cash flow. And the other is um, appreciation. They're very, very linked. And um, they're very, very linked. So, um, and this is cash flow of the investment. Um, and this is the appreciation of what it would be today. Uh, and so it all boils down to our idea that value equals NOI over cap rate. Or we could really look at it as our cash flow equals our value times our cap rate. Or we could look at it as, um, um, and this, this value here, if that is a value of if if value if appreciation is you have to bear with me on this one i didn't draw this one out so we're going live uh appreciation is the delta the change in value which means that um that it would be the change in NOI over the change in cap rate, right? So that, that would be the, the change that's there. Is that right? Would it be the change in cap rate? No, this actually wouldn't be the correct term. This would be the... Um, this would be over the new cap rate. Um, right? So um, that would be the, the change of value. So let's go with that idea. So all we're trying to do, oh, here we'll, all we're trying to do is we're playing with this algorithm here, or this algorithm, it doesn't particularly matter for our purposes. Um, so we're playing with that, and that's how we get are getting money. So let's start with, um, let's start with on the very bottom of this diagram, we have cash flow properties. Now, cash flow property. All we're what we're trying to do is we're trying to um, we're going to hold these properties for a very long time. We are going to uh, put money into our pocket of our investor, uh, 
as regularly and as consistently as possible. These are not complex deals, they're long holds. Um, and so we're trying to just put money in their pocket and eventually we'll sell it with appreciation. And so that's because we've got the value uh, equals the um, NOI over cap rate. And so as NOI goes up just over time, so if you own a property uh, that's regular, paying regular rents and maybe you're getting, maybe it's an apartment building in a really good area and you're getting rent growth of 5% every single year. Um, maybe that is, that is driving up the appreciating value. So when you take that same NOI, so the when you take that NOI of X, and you add to it that uh, increased NOI, um, then, uh, then what you're actually doing is uh, you're, you're loading up this equation so that this number is really, really big. And probably your cap rate is fairly stable and it's not changing much at all. That's really what is going on underneath the hood of what's there. So in order to make good money on these properties, what do we have to do? Well, they're always going to be in prime locations and they're gonna be in, um, we're gonna be mostly banking on uh, rent escalate, on escalations. But we always, to increase our NOI, um, so NOI, to increase it, we need to increase our income and lower our expenses. So this is what we're trying to do. Uh, so our income is increasing naturally because of rent escalations or this type of strategy. You'll be looking for other opportunities, but really that's what you're banking on. This is not a, a very hands-on uh, way to uh, increase the, the value. And then you're going to lower the expenses. But again, this isn't really built into the, the system for a cash flow strategy. You're really just banking on these rent, rent escalations that are very good, and you're hoping that that's, that uh, cap rate stays um, say stays say stable, right? So that's all you're trying to do is just your count. So the, your your driver here. So let's write that down. So the driver of your proposition of this strategy. Let's put it. But driver. is rent escalations. That's what you're trying to do. Um, what you're trying to do for, um, let's go up the up to here.
is um, is this is also a longer play. But you're really looking at this value add component. And so you're ultimately looking for the increase in value to go up. And you're doing that primarily for this kind of property. You're primarily doing it again from income. And, um, and not really from uh, changing your expenses or from changing the cap rate. So where does that, uh, where does that change in income come from? With this, we've got it really coming down to a couple different strategies that work. So we're looking for expiring leases, right? That's what we're, we're looking for here and below market rents. So, which tells us basically what our strategy is. So we're doing that by, by looking for, um, for releasing either to existing tenants or to new tenants uh, is one way to do it. Or we could also, as a major play here, We've talked about this before. Talk about remeasuring. So what we were talking about, about remeasuring, remeasuring is the strategy where you take a uh, property that's already generating income and you remeasure that whole space. And measurement standards tend to be, in almost every lease I've seen uh, in every state, is based around the building owners and managers association. So the standards that they use uh, change over a period of time. And because it's the building owners and managers association, they want the space to be as big as possible. So it's no longer just measuring the inside of the space wall to wall and figuring out what the square footage is. It's now there are some exterior spaces that count because of overhangs, things like that. There are other ways to measure it that really increase the square footage. Now I've seen this increase by 10, 20% even, um, and give, that's a huge amount. So if you're getting two bucks a month, let's do it in a year. Let's say you're getting $24 a square foot on, on rent and you're increasing it by 20%. Let's look at it. So for that same space, you're getting $28.80. So you're getting, you're getting that 20% more cash, same uh, cap rate. So what's the difference in the amount of money that's there? So that um, per square foot, You've just added 
And let's say it's at the building is at a six cap. You've just added $80 per square foot of value just by remeasuring. Now, so on a 10,000 square foot building, you've now got $800,000 more cash that you've magically created out of nothing. Um, so that's pretty amazing. So it works great, uh, and it's a great strategy here. So uh, let's put in what the driver is here. So our driver is increased. Put it here. rent dollars um, over the term. So do you see the, the distinction? There's, there's a nuance here between the, the driver for stabilized ad value and the driver for cash flow properties. So where the, the driver for cash flow properties is just the natural rent escalations that are taking place, so in apartment buildings are a great example. So here in where sort of near where where we are right now is a is an area called Van Nuys. You may have heard of it. It is stocked full of apartment buildings. I don't even know how many apartment buildings. There are hundreds and hundreds of apartment buildings there. They are a commodity at that point because they are all basically the same. They all have to charge basically the same rent. There's nothing really differentiating one from another other than some maybe one has a little bit nicer fixtures than the others. But we're talking nuance here. If you go to Van Nuys, you're looking for just an apartment. It's all going to be basically the same cost within a margin of error. Um, so the all that you're banking on there are these rent escalations. So is that natural rent that's climbing up every year uh, in order to, to appreciate your property? It's a great place to go when, as long as the those escalations are high enough, then it makes sense. Uh, when they're not high, then it, uh, then it doesn't really add a, a significant value to your investors. But, uh, here in the stabilized value add, we're talking about how do we take those existing rents? They're going to they're going to escalate as well, but how do we like really shove them up in order to really really bring them up uh, to the highest level that they can be? So that is the nuance that takes place there. Then we're talking about. Um, Then let's go down here and we'll talk about undervalued properties. In undervalued properties, what we're really trying to do here. So remember what an undervalued property is. It's very low cost per square foot and a very high cap. Uh, and that's probably because of, or that could very well be because of uh, renewing leases. 
So here, we're not so much looking at the NOI as the main driver. What we're looking at is this cap rate, right? Because what happens when all the leases have like one year left to term on them and it's, you know, it's a office building or retail building or a industrial building, the cap rate is just super, super high. The value is super, super low. And so you can buy these properties for very inexpensively. Maybe they're selling it now just because they need to. Uh, they need cash for some reason, or maybe it's because they are, um, uh, they're afraid of what's going to happen if that, if, if it turns or whatever. Um, but so you're buying it at this very, very high cap rate. And then you are counting on doing things that will decrease that cap rate. Things such as uh, renewing leases. Now, there's a distinction here, too, between renewing the lease for an undervalued property and renewing a lease for the stabilized value add. In a stabilized value add, you've got, you've got a very normal vacancy factor that's going on. Leases just are naturally expiring, and you're going to be able to release it without much concern. In a undervalued property, there's going to be some element of it where it is... Uh, that the value of that lease, the fact that it has such little term is pulling that cap rate or that value down, basically pulling that cap rate up and making it so it's undervalued uh, in the marketplace. So maybe it was, I mean, imagine that you went in and there was a, a department store that's not doing very well and they've got one year left on the lease. We have this massive property. And then you've got this, you know, barely anything left on the lease. And that the fact that it's got so little term is just dragging that, that uh, cap rate sky high in order to crush it. So that's what, uh, what is really going on in these uh, undervalued properties is that low, low cap rate. And so what are... What our driver is your high cap rate um, uh, actually well your your driver uh, of making money is moving cap rate down. to where the rest of the market or a, a normally positioned property would be. You're trying to move it down and that most of the time uh, comes from renewing leases. So our fourth major category is of course your value add. Now here, you've got a bunch of things going on, right? So this could be uh, 
the, the what se separates it from the stabilized value add is it's really not about just getting um, the just getting that increased rent dollars. You're really trying to get the increased total dollars coming in. So what you're trying to do is um, you can do any strategy to uh, Um, you're trying to do really any strategy that raises that NOI or lowers that cap rate at the same time. And so here, this, this is sort of the, the kitchen sink approach of what kind of fits in here. So we definitely have rent, uh, rent growth. And we definitely, uh, have, uh, renewing leases to change that cap rate. Let me change this. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to increase the income. Um, and that can be uh, any of these. So rent, um, square footage, but that's really rent, isn't it? Um, or adding other income. Or here's where we finally see we're trying to lower our expenses and lower them to such a point where suddenly we've got, um, uh, you know, as, as few expenses as possible. Now that could even come in the form of transferring that risk from a existing uh, lease structure onto a new lease structure uh, that has different terms for paying operating expenses. So moving somebody from a modified gross to a triple net, uh, moving somebody from a uh, full service gross into a, a modified gross, that can all decrease those operating expenses because really it's just changing how your pool of money is. It's not actually, neither of those strategies is actually lowering your expenses. It's actually really increasing your income and how that comes in. Uh, but it also decreases the amount of risk that you're taking. Uh, some of the other strategies though that do lower expenses would be submetering, uh, other energy sources like solar, um, and or just lowering your property taxes all in an effort to raise your NOI as high as possible. Now, we're also trying to change our cap rate. Make some room. So we're also trying to lower our cap rate. And so there are a lot of things that affect the cap rate as well. So. Cap rate really is all about positioning. And so we've got term is definitely a major factor as we talked about in the undervalued properties. But it's also, you know, just how your property is situated. So it could be um, your tenant mix. For example, if you have a a retail center that is almost all um, that's got 10 tenants and 
Nine of them are service tenants where it's, you know, fix your cell phones, your H&R block, things like that. That is nowhere near going to be as low of a cap rate as something that's like all restaurants. All restaurants is always going to have a better cap rate uh, because they're just better tenants and they pay more money. Um, it, there it comes out of it comes as a matter of rent, uh, but it also comes as just the cash that's available. When you have a restaurant that's earning good money, the rent cost isn't a, as major of a factor. You know, it's between eight and twelve percent normally of what of their expenses, where it can be you know twenty and thirty percent of a service-based business expenses is just the office. Um, not the best way for them to choose that, but that tends to be the oftentimes the case. I mean, think about the cost of, of an H&R block and how much that, how expensive that rent is just to just in comparison to their operating expense. The only other expenses that they have really uh, is, as, a, as a franchise is the cost of the, you know, of, of labor. So it doesn't really, uh, it, it doesn't add value to it. So changing that tenant mix can definitely uh, decrease the cap rate, which would be a good thing. And then just changing perception. So this could be refacing it, changing the architecture, making it the new cool hip building, uh, even if it's not new and cool, just making it a place that tenants want to go because every landlord is concerned about vacancy. And so the more sexy that a property is, the more likely they're going to be able to release property and the better the perception is, which lowers the cap rate and then adds that value. So... So with these, our driver is uh, is both. So it's it's uh, raising NOI by more dollars, which can be rent or other income. Lowering expenses. And um, also, uh, let's call it um, repositioning. Or a lower cap. Okay, so you're really repositioning it for a lower cap rate. Um, now, the uh, now the last strategy we talked about is development, and it is a kind of a special thing, but it actually is it follows the same general model. I mean, what are you trying to do here? Driver is to create an NOI 
right? You're building a space in order to rent it out and have a cap rate. And the lower, the better, right? So you want to build the best building you can so that cap rate is as good and as appealing in the marketplace as possible. If I'm a developer and I've got a chance to build for, say, um, a, um, uh, let's say, let's say I've got two different uh, fast foods companies. Let's say we've got on one hand, we've got a um, uh, Carl's Jr., which generally does very good. And we've got an Arby's, which generally doesn't do very good. The Carl's Jr. is going to make more money. It's going to have a lower cap rate because the marketplace appreciates the Carl's Jr. much better. Um, so, and that's why it is, uh, has that higher cap rate. So I think this probably makes sense. Um, excuse my allergies today. Um, so we've got a... Um, that is what we're doing when we look at, at the strategies and how those different add value strategies kind of play out or value add, how we say add value, uh, how the different value add strategies play out and then um, in, in these same strategies, because it's really all the same thing. We're moving the same kinds of things in order to create that value in, for our investors. So what is the next step of building out our, uh, our founder investment theory? It is, uh, we start identifying our niche. which is property type. We start thinking about what our property type is, making sure that we understand what it is. We should know as many things about it as possible. Uh, what, how does it, um, how do the main tenants make money? What are the main ways that those tenants make money? What is the, um, the main risks for those kinds of tenants? What are the, um, what are the, the rest of the terms? What are the vacancies that occur? What are the lease types? You know, how many tenants you're going to be working at, how hands-on is it versus off And For example, if you've got a uh, apartment building is much, much more hands-on than a warehouse. You know, you you probably will only show up to the warehouse once, you know, to rent it and that's it. Um, you probably don't need to go very often. Uh, apartment building, your property manager is going to be there many days uh, a month. Visiting the property, visiting the tenants, making sure that uh, things get improved or that the toilets aren't aren't flushing or leaking or whatever. Um, so those are the kinds of things in the property type. And then we've got our location. You know, how far away is it from you? Where is it located? 
Those are the things that uh, fall into your niche. The last category is your risk profile. And we talked before about the spectrum. High risk, medium risk, low risk. And somewhere on this spectrum is where your investors like to sit. And here too, is somewhere on this spectrum is where your uh, is the risk of your um, uh, is, is part of the risk. So development tends to be high risk. Cash flow properties tend to be low risk. Stabilized value add tends to be medium risk. Value add tends to be medium risk. And uh, the uh, undervalued properties tends to be low risk. So you see what happens here is that on this continuum between high risk and low risk, we've also got the complexity of the strategy. The more complex the strategy, the higher the risk is going to be. It's just the natural uh, part of what is there. And so that is also part of the risk profile. If you've got a bunch of low-risk people and you're doing development, eh, it's probably not going to work out very well. If you've got a bunch of high-risk, uh, high-rollers who like taking big, big chances, doing this deal where you're buying this this um, fourplex in uh, in the Beverly Hills at a 3.5 cap, and you're just waiting for rents to increase naturally, they're not going to go for it. It's it's boring, and it's not going to happen. So it's this uh, risk profile. I think I told the story of, um, I may not have told it to, to y'all. So uh, when I was putting a deal together, I went and there was a prominent doctor who I thought for sure was going to invest in the project. Um, and I wanted to, I thought, okay, there's no way that I can't get say $300,000 from this guy. He's got a ton of money. I know he's sitting on cash right now without anything to do. And he, uh, he doesn't have, he doesn't have anything to go in it. And he likes me. He knows me and trusts me. This was before I came up with founder investment theory. And before I came up with this idea of a risk profile. So I had lunch with this doctor, and uh, so I said, Dr. S, um, here's this property, I'm syndicating, I've got all this stuff, uh, and then um, it's a great property, it's going to make a ton of money, and it's going to make a ton of money because we're buying it at a, you know, at a low cost, we're going to wait for it to appreciate over five years, and it looks like we're going to get a nice 17% Actually, I think that one was actually 15. We're going to get a nice 15% IRR. The tenant is safe. They're not going to do, they're not going anywhere. It's really going to be super duper. You're going to love it. And he said, he looked at me and he was like, eh, yeah, it sounds like a good deal, but it's not for me. And I was shocked because it was like, well, 
why? I mean, if you can make, if you got cash just sitting around, why would you not take a deal like this where it's a good thing? You know, 15% is a good return on a property with such low risk. I mean, it was 15%. Oops. It was 15% in risk, but it actually was like fairly low risk profile in reality. It really sat here. Um where normally if you're paying 15%, it was higher. And he said, Tilden, I've got three pools of money that I that I use. Okay. And this will explain why yours isn't a good fit. So I have this category of money, and this is where a large portion of my money is is, is pooled. So I've got this very large pool, and I, it is super low risk. It's money that, you know, the, a great recession could come. That money's really not going anywhere. We're talking it's in like long-term bonds and it really is just going to sit there and it's going to sit there forever. Um, and it's my money that, well, when everything goes to hell in a handbasket, I know that money's there and I'm going to be very, very comfortable even if the worst thing happens. So it's very, very low risk money. And then I've got a category of money that's maybe the that's about a little bit smaller than my low risk category, but it's it's a fairly substantial size. And this is my income money. And my income money basically pays for my standard of living so that I make sure that I've got um, you know, that I've got money coming in for the rest of my life and I don't have to work or I don't have to really do anything. I get to go on trips. I get to spend money. And the income money, it pays me, you know, one to $2 million a year. And it's, it's very comfortable. You know, I'm, I'm extremely comfortable and I've got a great lifestyle and I don't really have to worry about anything. So the bulk of it is my income money. And I said, okay, well, that's two of them. But, you know, I know that you put money into other, into other projects and you put money into some businesses and you've told me about some of these investments that you've made and these venture capital things that you've been doing. He said, yeah, that is my pool around money or play money. My play money, I'm not even really expecting to get that money back. You know, if I do, I expect to get like a 50% return or more. But it might really, my play money is there so that I can have fun, right? I enjoy investing. I like it. It's fun to do. And I like experimenting and seeing what happens. I like finding these, these people who need money and, and just need capital to do these crazy things. Uh, and when they pay off, they're going to pay off big time. But if they don't pay off, well, ultimately it kind of evens out because five of them won't pay off, but one will, and it will do great. Um, that's my play money. And my play money isn't very big. And I said, well, okay, but this, this is one of those pro properties too. This is one of those projects where, you know, it's really gotta, gonna do that. It's gonna, you know, it's, it's something where you get to be a part of it and it's gonna be fun. And he shook his head, kind of smiled and said, no, it's not. See, it's it's not play money. It's got it's got a fifty percent. I'm looking for a fifty percent minimum return. You're talking about fifteen percent. That's terrible. 
And this is like 15% in five years, I'm going to get that money back. You know, if maybe if it was like six months, I'd do something like that. But, um, but in, in five years, that's five years that I don't have that money to put them in things that are a lot more fun than your project. So it's not play money. Uh, and I said, okay, well, you know, it's got to, it's going to be paying out dividends and, uh, and it fits that, right? So it should be an income, it should be income money. He said, no, you just told me that the real money is made on the appreciation of the property because you're buying it for a low cost and you're going to sell it in five years for an increased cost when the rent bump comes. You know, the, the amount that it's getting right now on the income, you know, is maybe 4%. So it's not, not interested in 4%. I need to get much better than that in order to live off. This is the money I live off. So it's not income and we all know that it's real estate. So there's no way this thing's low rent. It just isn't. It's just a property. It's backed by a good tenant, but you know, anything can happen. You know, they're not as sound as the US government. It's not low risk. So although your project sounds interesting, it's not anything that fits into one of my three categories of play money, income money, or low risk. So you see what I did there? I went to Dr. S thinking that just from the viewpoint of I've got a really strong, sound investment that should make a lot of money and was really good. And I went into the meeting thinking that investors make a decision based on, is this seem like a, a reasonably logical way in order to spend money? But it, that's not the way that investors actually think. So investors think first of, well, first they want to know, does it make sense? Right? They want to know that the deal makes sense. They can kind of understand it. But most of it, that's so we've got this idea of, does it make sense? And they do need to know that. But the making sense is just a small piece of the puzzle because most of what how they make the decision is underneath the water. This is all logic. And this is all emotion. And if you come at it from looking at just as an investment itself, just like one thing saying, does this one thing make sense? Well, there are a lot of other one things out there that make sense. But when you can hit off these kinds of things and identify where does their natural risk profile lead them? Where do they like to sit? You know, then you're talking about all this stuff down here all the emotion that it can make sure that it feels comfortable to them. And when you've got a strategy that they can kind of, they can understand, but it gives them something more than just kind of like, okay, that I understand it. It gives them an idea of something that they feel like they want to be a part of. Now, sometimes people want to feel like they can be part of a value-add project because they're taking a building that's been dilapidated and it's ugly and they're being part of that whole thing that re 
reimagines it and makes it awesome. And they feel like that's my building. They can point to it and say, yeah, boy, you should have seen it before, right? That's an emotional thing. It may make sense in a logical portion, but it only does that in order to make sure that they feel secure about it as an emotional driver. And the same thing goes for this cash flow properties, right? So here you've got investors who are, are afraid of all the things that could happen. They want something very secure. They want something very safe. And they want something, well, boy, those properties have always been good. They're always going to increase at that same level. And it gives them that sense of comfort. And so if you bring those same people and try and tell them how you can't lose on this development deal, of course, it's risky and a risk. It's all out there or something. You're appealing to the wrong person because they don't have the emotions to drive it. And then you've got the, you know, and there's the same can be said for the undervalued properties and for the, for the stabilized at value. We'll just use undervalued properties as an example. You've got an undervalued property. You're going to this person and you're saying, look, we're going to get, we've got this building for a real steal. We've got a bargain here. This thing is worth, is worth much, much more than the pennies on the dollar that it's selling for. This thing is going at such a low rate and it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a real, real great deal. This appeals to your bargain hunters. This is a great property. And the, the logical part of it it's really kind of small. I mean, you've met these people, right? You've met people who are so in love with finding bargains that you tell them that it's 50% off and they don't even look at the price tag at that point. It's 50% off. It must be a great deal. And so you're driving to this emotional part. This is why fit exists. This is what it does because it every piece of it from strategy to niche, and they were talking about property type, to location, and the risk profile all feeds, is serves this emotional part before it even comes close to serving the logical part. So we can serve that, and it still makes sense because this is why we do the underwriting. Right. So we do the logical part. That's why we present good logical part. Uh, we have nice underwriting. So it all makes sense. But the whole story behind it is just to get to that emotional side, because once they've made the decision emotionally, they'll do whatever it takes to make that decision logically. And fit is the only way to really get at it in a way that makes sense to somebody where they can feel OK doing it. You're trying to give the logical part of them permission to say, okay, to the emo emotional part, or look at it in the converse. You're trying to do whatever you can so that the emotional feels okay, so that the logic can just pick up the slack and pull them the rest of the way there. That is founder investment theory and why it is so powerful. All right, so we're going to do a little bit shorter uh, talk today because we've talked a lot uh, and I think we've really dived in good. Here's what I want to have happen. 
I want people to really spend some time thinking about this because founder investment theory is not a light topic. It's not something there just because I think it's important to find the values of your company or anything like that. It is because this is how you convince investors. This is how you choose properties. And this ultimately is how you yourself are comfortable with it too. I mean, if you were one of these very, very low risk people and you were doing development deals, you had a very short life. You're going to be stressed out and freaked out all the time. Or if you're just doing these very, these cash flow deals and then, but you're really like this crazy developer at heart, you are going to be bored out of your mind. So answering the question of founder investment theory is where you start. So think it through. How do you do it for yourself? And then for once you've decided that, now you know how to start talking to investors and how you can start lining up to their emotional side. But you also know how to start looking for properties because now you know, okay, I need something that's value add. And so I'm looking for these kinds of things. I know this is my niche. I know this is my... Um, uh, this is my location. This is uh, where I want things to be. And you can start having that conversation with brokers and start building out your listings and LoopNet and Crexy and wherever else you're looking, the MLS, um, and making sure that it all lines up. I know you'll find that useful. Again, it's about founder investment theory. Everything boils down to that. That is what is will make you successful as a uh, as a, uh, a syndication or as a fund if you're thinking about that that fit every time it's putting yourself into the right mind of your investor now this version of the fit this was actually put together for uh, people that i would coach on how to get started in real estate syndication so it's obviously real estate centric but it applies across the industry it's and across asset classes so it's that idea of fit that you have to be thinking of in order to be successful in this business. My name is Tilda Muschietti. I am a syndication attorney with the Muschietti Syndication Law Group. If we can help you with your Regulation D, Rule 506B, 506C offering, please don't hesitate to give us a call. Whether it's real estate, you're raising money for a business, whatever it is, we can help you put that together. We can talk about your fit, strategize about that, all in the context of making your, uh, your syndication or fund both investable through using the fit, as well as compliant with the rules of the SEC uh, and the state regulators.